And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and then it is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And those evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This has been the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Patty. And if you, um, I want to, before we get started today, if you brought kiddos with you, um, I want you to know that we do offer intentional, safe, gospel-centered programming for ages birth through first grade in our Bayless Kids program. Um, and uh, they meet just down the hallway, out these doors, um, all during uh, the sermon portion of our, of our service. They'll rejoin us after that. Um, but we also love having kids in service. And so uh, if you are more comfortable having your kids in service, we love the squeals and squeaks and the comments and questions. This is just, it's so good to have kids in service, the whole family want, as soon as is wise and possible for your family to, to make it a, a priority of gathering here. But if you would like to check your kids in, where my, some, some my kids are as well, uh, down the hall to the right, um, you are more than welcome to do so at this time. I'm sure our leaders would love to check you in. Um, the... Uh, my, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here, and today we are going to be in the gospel according to Mark. And I hope you will keep your Bibles open with you this morning. Uh, we're gonna, if you, uh, again, I hope you have your finger on the Bible passage, actually, as we look at it. So you're going to get kind of bored, if not, because we're going to talk a lot about the Bible. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Now, for some time uh, already, and for some time to come, we are going, we have been looking at this one book, not just as many know it, the uh, Mark, but the Gospel according to Mark. And what we mean by that, the reason it's called the Gospel according to Mark, is it's about that central news that is at the center of Christian faith and practice. The Gospel, the world-changing good news of what has come in Jesus in his person and work. It's not just, again, about um, the, the gospel according to Mark, Mark is about the central claim of Jesus' life, not just simply giving us a biography about Jesus, but aiming to convince us of certain things that he claimed. And Mark's gospel, more than any other gospel, moves at a tremendously fast pace. You've been with us so far, you'll have seen this, although it can get a bit lost in the pace by which we're walking through the book. We're probably going to, it's going to, it's already been one year, we're going to go a second year and maybe a third year. We take a break, obviously, in the summer to do the Psalms 
and in the winter to do other books as well. But this book, most of it is at a sprint pace, which you can t tell with the, how often it uses the term immediately. And immediately they did this, and immediately did that, they did that. But every so often, the passage shifts into slow motion for ones that we're in now, which commentators will call um, a kind of conflict speech. The longest conflict speech, so-called, in Mark's gospel, a passage in which Jesus finds himself in a conflict, fighting. I realize that might betray some of our assumptions about Jesus, but Jesus very often found himself in very persistent conflict with the religious teachers of his day, the Pharisees and scribes, prompted by something as seemingly innocent as hand-washing. Although I guess today hand-washing is not quite so innocent in a day of a global pandemic, but it turns out to be, more importantly, about some of the basic assumptions that they and we make about the nature of God, the nature of ourselves, and the nature of our world. This conflict over hand-washing nonetheless ends up being a conflict about our basic understanding of who we are and where our hope is found. You see, in conflict passages like this one, they do far more than tell us that Jesus wasn't quite as universally liked as we might assume that he was. They get out why Jesus' understanding stands at odds with the predominant religious understanding of the time. And I think the predominant understanding of most human societies. This passage tells us, more importantly, that why Jesus' perspective and this other common pervasive perspective turns out to be irreconcilable. They're not just two sides of the same coin. They're fundamentally diff two different ways of seeing the world. And they stand so at odds with one another that Jesus' perspective, this master story we're going to look at, or worldview as some might call it, eventually results in Jesus' cross, eventually results in his death. Today, perhaps more clearly than ever in Mark's gospel, we're going to find the master story assumed by the religious and secular people alike, which proves to be tremendously unsatisfying. And the master story of Jesus, which I think proves to be tremendously satisfying in its place. In our passage today, I want to hone in on what these two rival stories are, including their rival problems and their rival solutions, and the implications these have, just, not just for our personal lives, but for our communities, even for our larger society. This master story, number one, outside in. Before we get into this one, though, we need to understand a little bit more about the circumstances of what's going on here. After all, this isn't, just the, this, the, this isn't the first time that these well-regarded teachers had a bone to pick with Jesus. These teachers who understood their responsibility, not just to teach God's law about what God had said, but to make sure that it was followed by the people. They have fought with Jesus, though, at various points in which he seemed to disregard their restrictions, disregard even the laws of God. They fought with Jesus over the kind of company that Jesus keeps and eats with, people he call, they called the sinners and tax collectors. They fought over the failure of how Jesus' disciples participated in religious fasts or regular ones. 
the ones that they would expect of a serious teacher of the law. They fought over how casually Jesus and his disciples regarded their most regular and sacred holiday, the Sabbath. And now, as John preached on last week, another one of our elders, they fought over how Jesus has conducted themselves at mealtime. Specifically, verse 2 tells us they had neglected to wash their hands before a meal. Now, you need to know that this is not the kind of hand washing that your mom made sure you did after you came out playing outside in the dirt, or you would do after a long day of sweaty work out in the sun. This is an extra washing that would have taken place after all of those had taken place, right before a meal, and this washing was less about hygiene than it would be about ritual purity, which I know many of us have not ever thought about. You, uh, the, this ritual, though, would take place every meal and had a symbolic importance to it. It was less about clean, cleaning dirt or sweat off the hands than it was about symbolizing something even more important. It had to do with the basic nature of sin itself, or at least the Bible's vision of what's wrong with the world. Now I realize, depending on how you were raised, if you haven't abandoned the concept of sin already, you might still have a rather one-sided, simplistic understanding of what the Bible means when it speaks of sin. Usually, we mean, when we think of sin, we think about something we think about crossing a line, maybe an arbitrary line that God has set. However, the Bible actually gives us a much more complex picture of sin, which when we have come to understand it, helps us make sense of why the Bible then treats sin as such a big deal. After all, if it's just crossing a line, let alone an arbitrary line, sin remains small in our imagination. It means it seems strange that God would be so grumpy about it, but the Bible actually paints a much more massive and penetrating picture of its effects. And one of the words that the Bible uses to get at the emotional effect, or actually the consequences of sin, is it uses corruption. It speaks of sin in terms of filth. The image is of something bright, of something spotless, of something clean, becoming dirty, or something healthy and strong, becoming sick. And this corruption is everywhere, according to the Bible, infecting everything. And so that even as the world isn't as bad as it could be, hardly anything is as it should be. But even more importantly, we cannot hope to have, let alone enjoy, a love relationship with God, who is a holy God, without this kind of corruption, who takes sin very seriously, so long as we have this kind of corruption ourselves. It is the basic problem of the Bible. What, did we, what, did, what was lost in the Bible that needs to be regained? It's God's presence, the ability to enjoy this love relationship. But it cannot be repaired, repaired so long as human beings find themselves on, in corruption, as they themselves find themselves before this innocent, pure, and spotless, holy God as defiled, as Jesus says. We need to be cleansed, according to the Bible. We need to be washed, which is where this ritual cleansing comes in, an extra washing of the hands before every meal, reminding every person enjoying that meal that sin corrupts, sin defiles. In an even more real and enduring sense than dirt or grime or sweat. Now, it's important to know that this kind of washing was only required originally by Jewish 
priests. That's where the legislation came from. However, after Israel's return from exile, it seems that the religious teachers wanting everyone to see and be reminded of the corrupting effects of sin begin to mandate this kind of washing for the average person. Much like it might have been common for you to pray before every meal growing up, it was common for every person to wash before a meal. And it turns out this kind of ritual, nonetheless, as much as it might be uncommon in your house, still persists in several religions today, not just in Judaism. For example, when I was a pastor in Denver, occasionally we would lead mosque, we would be led on, I'm sorry, on, uh, in these mosque tours right up the road, uh, and during one of these tours, our guide was explaining Islam to us, and he explained specifically the practice of wudu. Um, now, you can pronounce, you can correct my pronunciation later, but nonetheless, here's what the concept is. In this practice, a devout Muslim, before a formal prayer or reading of the Quran, would wash various parts of the body, and symbolically picturing the same thing, the cleansing of sin. Hands, I remember him saying, for the sin we have done. Mouth, for the sins we have spoken. Nostrils, for the sinful lusts we have smelt. Ears, for the sins we have heard. Arms, for the sin we have embraced. Head, for the sins we have thought. Feet, for the sin we have walked into. Similarly, the same assumption that sin is everywhere and that sin corrupts. So I realize this kind of tradition couldn't seem more irrelevant to modern people today. In fact, in a day where we despise the idea of shame, you might cringe at a practice that seems to reinforce it. Popular psychology would say that the only thing worth being ashamed of today is shaming others. Shame is something to be refused, something talked down, and yet even those of us who deny the theological reality of shame can't deny the subjective experience of it. We know, in other words, what it feels like not just to be guilty, but to feel dirty, to feel good for nothing, to feel spoiled or ruined. It leaves us feeling like we have been stained in a way that no one can see, but is very much real. Often, this shame exists for misplaced reasons. As Kevin DeYoung points out, whether in everyday quote-unquote failures, like a messy house or unwanted pounds, or in, a, in more catastrophic situations, like the experience of sexual abuse or racial bigotry. Almost all of us have elements of our person or our past that wrongly make us feel embarrassed, dirty, and ashamed. Much of the shame we experience, in other words, is misplaced. An inappropriate and undeserved sense of humiliation. But still... Even this misplaced shame gets at a deeper reality, a deeper need, which cannot be corrected by simply shouting back at the mirror, you are awesome. It gets at the fact that there's a shame underneath the shame that our souls, even today, long to be clean. The question was, where did that sense come from? Or how do I become 
unclean, according to this story, this outside-in story. This is where we get to that master story, the first one, and it's assumed by the teachers, and I think assumed by much of the world, including most, of, most major religions, this outside-in story, the basic assumption is that what makes you unclean is somewhere out there. Corruption is something that happens to me. It lands on me, something I accidentally bump into, like a clean shirt against a muddy car. In fact, one of the reasoning behind the Pharisees washing their hands before every meal is they never knew what kind of Gentile or Gentile influence they would bump up against, and so they needed to cleanse themselves of everything that was accidental as well as intentional. After all, we assume that, many of us assume that we are inherently good. It's how we enter the world. And so the only thing that could experience the, that could explain the evil things around us has to do with our environment, our upbringing, our life experiences. Just think of how many villains in our movies or TV shows, uh, the really compelling ones are the complex ones, the ones who aren't inherently evil but beautifully broken. It was something they experienced that explains how, who they are and what they do. This gets at some of our basic assumptions that if something is wrong or corrupt or evil, it's something, it's merely because someone who was originally innocent and good experienced something bad. It came from outside them. In this master story, goodness or cleanness is something we already have, have which needs to be protected and preserved. In the story, we imagine that sin is much like a contagion, a virus, if you will, that I can catch, a virus that I need to protect myself from. And if I can just avoid catching the virus, then I can remain clean. That seems relevant today, right? If this is true, then, which I'm not, I don't think it is, if this is true, though, the next basic question is, how do I remain clean? Well, I think we can identify at least three different solutions that the Pharisees resorted to. Three solutions that I think we resort to as well. And they kind of radiate out in their importance. They start out in personal, they go to community, and then they go to society. What are these three? They, they are to manage, number two, to isolate, and number three, to mandate. First false solution is to manage. The first way the Pharisees, and I think we, try to remain clean from corruption is by managing our personal behavior, by behavior modification. In light of the track record of their forefathers, of the compromises that had landed Israel in exile, these teachers resolved to lead Israel to do better, to turn the volume up on their obedience, to take God's laws and make them even more restrictive, to work harder at doing better. At a personal level, they could, they figured at least, that they could avoid corruption if they just managed their own behavior. And they're not the only ones, are they? In fact, when it comes to combating our gnawing sense of shame and guilt, I think many of us also focus on working harder at doing better. 
I see this in religious people, particularly, who assume that the way to make God happy is by finding out what the rules are, and not only finding them out, but mastering them, reducing the Bible into some sort of textbook on how to be more honest with others, how to take control of lust, how to pray more, and how to avoid bad influences along the way. In fact, I fear that this is how we often teach the Bible to our kids, as if it was a textbook on how to be a good boy and how to be a good girl. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't have, to have some direct things to say about our behavior. But divorced from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which we'll get to in a second, these commands are simply reduced down to an exclamation point on the sentence, do better, work harder. It is reduced down to behavior management. But of course, this solution isn't restricted to religious people, is it? There are plenty of voices, especially today, that tell us our solution to our sense of inadequacy, our sense of shame, is simply sweating a bit more at work, losing a bit more weight, getting into that social group, or telling ourselves a bit more firmly about how great we actually are. As author Rachel Hollis puts it, you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Anyone else cringe under the weight of that? You see, the problem with behavior management is that we find ourselves eventually unable to change, which either leads us to despair or forces us into dishonesty, convincing ourselves that this wasn't as big of a deal than it, I thought it was or the change we are able to produce, then produces in us a kind of self-righteous snobbishness as we compare ourselves to others, those who couldn't pull it off, who couldn't work hard as hard as I did, or a kind of unreeling, uh, unrelenting anxiety that just one more failure, just one slip-up could cause all of this to come crashing down. But this isn't the only solution we resort to. We don't, just man we don't just manage, we isolate. And this gets more from personal level to a, to a community level. We saw this in previous conflict passages in Mark. We see where Jesus receives pushback for the kind of company he keeps again, that he is mocked as the friend of sinners, of prostitutes, of tax collectors. He even invited a tax collector into his inner circle. Imagine the audacity. He even touched a leper, they heard. A leper, can't he see that it was people like this that carried corruption with them? These people were to be kept at a distance. These people were to be isolated from. But again, the Pharisees weren't the only ones to resort to this kind of tactic. Let me ask you, have you ever, you ever experienced yourself on the outside of a clique? A clique you couldn't break into? Maybe you were inside one. Why do cliques develop, not just in religious communities, but uh, not just in the church, but outside of it? It's not just that we find ourselves drawn to people with common interests. In some sense, acceptance in the right clique makes us feel safe. It makes us feel safe particularly from those who are outside of it, from those who might make you unpopular, might make you unacceptable, might make you unclean. Acceptance there makes sure that you're away from the unclean ones. 
In fact, some sociologists have argued that the intensity of our online debates today for the ever-widening polarization in our culture has not, it has to do not just with our desire to be on the right side of things, but to distance ourselves from those who are on the wrong side of things, to keep ourselves safe from the bad ones and what's coming to them. Of course, this can happen in religious communities which ignore Jesus' teaching and intentionally isolate themselves from a surrounding culture. They fear the culture that they fear is going to hell in a handbasket fast. But it also isn't limited to them. Ironically, in a culture that supposedly loves tolerance, we find ourselves, perhaps more easily than ever, intolerant of those outside our circle, don't we? Surrounding ourselves exclusively with those who agree with our religious and political convictions, a kind of self-made echo chamber, if you will, where you just hear back your voice even louder, in which we are able to increasingly convince ourselves that those outside our community aren't just idiots, they're dangerous. Isn't it ironic how in isolating ourselves from the judgmental ones, we can become just as judgmental in the process? Unfortunately, this community solution decays into the rampant tribalism we see today, and along the way, it turns us into the same kind of legalists we despise, making all sorts of unreachable expectations for those who really want to prove that they belong. More than that, I fear that while our eyes are out there watching for the corruption outside of our community, we often can blind ourselves to the corruption growing within. Still, there's a third solution. Not just manage, not just isolate, but mandate. The Pharisees did this by what, you, what they called a fence around the law. They knew that they had crossed the line as a people too many times before, and so what was the solution? to draw a line even further back, to go beyond the explicit commands of God and draw out the implicit ones that they saw there, new commands that would help keep them safe from even minor compromises, like the mom who, instead of saying, don't play with the fire on the stove, says, don't even touch the stove, don't even come near it. Again, if corruption is largely out there, something I need to protect myself against, Not only do I need to manage my behavior religiously, pun intended, not only do I need to make sure I am isolated in the right community, I need to find a way then to compel others to do so as well. I need to make sure that others don't bring this all crashing down. And like the Pharisees, we resort to all sorts of legalistic mandates and give ultimate importance to our reforms, even our legal ones today. You see this? Don't be- you don't believe me? Again, the ultimate importance even religious people can give to the reforms that they want to enforce. Look at how often we argue that the next presidential can- candidate, the next pre- presidential election, is the most important election we have ever had. How many of you have been around long enough to see that almost every election? But every four years, we'll confirm this solution doesn't work as an ultimate solution, no matter who is in the White House. And how many have we seen on the way to their legal reform, the thing that they're fighting so hard for, justify unthinkable compromises for the greater good? 
becoming a monster in the name of a particular cause. Add to that the intoxication of victory once we finally get what we're aiming at, once we can finally force others into our conscience. It can blind us with the unseen side effects that come with it. And it can pull our attention away from what the mission of Christ's church actually is. You and I, like the Pharisees, view sin and its corruption, I think, like a cold we can catch, managing our behavior with self-made masks, isolating ourselves from the sick ones, and mandating others follow my conscience. However, Jesus argues that an outside-in story doesn't finally answer our deepest and most enduring need. Certainly, these personal community and social solutions have some role when it comes to seeking the glory of God and loving our neighbor. We should do what we can to learn what God's word has to say about my sex life. We should do what we can to change our habits, to run from temptation, to fight for the integrity of a church community, and to protect others through legal action. But an outside-in story can't finally answer our deepest and most enduring need because it cannot change the heart. According to Jesus, the nature of our problem is not outside-in. It is inside-out. Thinking back to Jesus, I think many of us love his deliberate disregard of religious tradition, or at least theirs. I think many of us assumes this proves because that Jesus doesn't uh, particularly care about religious rules. We have this kind of image of Jesus as being a wandering, tolerant hippie, pushing back the, against the man and announcing, all you need is love wherever he went. The kind of live and let live attitude some of us wish more religious people would possess. You might get this from his claim that he says and that nothing outside a person can defile them. In fact, he says that these things outside of you are no, no more able to truly defile someone than a bad meal can, which, as bad as it may be, eventually ends up in the toilet. It's meant to be that direct. But notice this is not the same as assuming nothing can defile a person. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he seems to assume something actually more intense. He doesn't soften the demand he doesn't soften the problem, he sharpens it. He assumes that you and I are already unclean. Not because of something we have experienced, or even because something we have done, although that has contributed to it. We, we are unclean because of something that we already bring along with us. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from The Lord of the Rings. I know it's super nerdy, but nonetheless, you see in this book two of the central characters, Sam and Frodo, face a variety of dangers. They, they face cold and confusion. They get lost. They face points of exhaustion where they don't know if they can carry on. One of their inner fellowship, their inner, their inner circle of friends, turns on them. They are even captured at one point by their enemies. Not to mention the terrible monsters, the growing crowd of orcs that comes as they advance on their own, on their enemy's land. But none of these dangers makes Lord of the Rings particularly unique in that sense. Rather, the thing that it makes it so unique, and that actually makes their danger so 
remarkably dangerous isn't the dangers that they face out there. It is the danger that they bring along with them, the ring, which at every turn, like a living thing, is looking to be found out, looking to trip the heroes up, looking to see these heroes compromise in a way that reveals themselves, seeing in every circumstance, in every threat, an opportunity to deliver these heroes over to their enemy. What makes their journey, in other words, so ominous and dangerous is something they already bring along with them, something like the voice of temptation that is seeing in every circumstance a chance to trip them up. In many ways, this is the reality of sin and its corruption. Certainly, we face a variety of dangers, a variety of opportunities and pressures to compromise. But the true danger is what we bring along with us, what theologians have referred to as a sin nature, a fundamental disposition to reject God, to distrust God himself, and to choose ourselves each and every time as Lord and Savior. The doctrine of a sin nature, this this concept is that if you are given a chance, if you're given 10 chances, if you're given 100 chances, 1,000 chances, you would still choose yourself and not God as Lord and Savior. According to Jesus, what truly makes someone unclean is not something that comes from outside the body, but what comes from their own heart. I had somebody who once stormed out of my office, someone who called himself a Christian, for this very concept, very, very upset when we looked at some of the verses that confirmed it, saying back to me, how could you say such a thing? You don't even know me. And ironically said, I better leave now before I do something I regret. This man, nonetheless, was as upset as I think some of us get when we hear a concept like this because it seems very extreme. Again, if this is something, not something I experience, that makes me almost out of control. It means it's something I can't do anything about. If it comes from within me, if I bring it wherever I go, then what hope is there? Well, this comes to the hope that Jesus is preparing his audience for. As John describes last week, described last week, the idea has to do less with a biological organ here when it refers to the heart than it has to do with the center of a person. The heart was understood to be the seat not only of our emotional life, but of our intellect and will as well. You see, according to the Bible, we are not primarily thinking things, doing things, or feeling things. We think, do, and feel according to our hearts, according to the deepest disposition and desires of our hearts. In fact, notice the list that Jesus makes. Every conceivable compromise. The list itself isn't particularly important other than it's expansive, chronicling a variety of attitudes and actions so that nobody can read this list and say, well, I'm glad I have an out. I don't struggle with any of that stuff, okay? So some of you might feel like you've got your sex life under control, but what about here with envy? Anybody been envious here? Okay, so you have um, also here, um, what about those who um, don't feel particularly content about your life, but um, have you ever cherished anger at someone? Have you ever been accused of being foolish? I mean, this 
what list is expansive, covering a variety of actions and attitudes, not so much to give us specific manifestations of sin as to give concrete examples of a common condition. Where do these all come from? These are all weeds that come from a common root. And what is that root? It is the heart. This is why Jesus can say things like, lust is the same as adultery. Or he can say that anger and hatred is the same as murder. Not because those don't come with very clearly different consequences, but because our most private thoughts and our most public compromises, whether in the arena of our sexual behavior, our finances, our relationships, or our private thoughts, they all reveal the same, what Jesus calls an evil heart. This is why Sum looms so large in the Bible. It's not merely a matter of crossing the line. It's something internal, something we take with us. Sin isn't primarily, again, a matter of crossing a boundary too many times. It has to do with the orientation of our deepest desires. It isn't a cold so much that I catch as it is a cancer that is already growing within me. You see why others would have been frustrated by Jesus' claims? It's not that he is too soft For many, he seems too hard. If this is true, it means that any attempt to keep sin and its corruption at bay by managing my behavior or isolating myself from others or by mandating others respect my conscience, it simply isn't enough. Let me give you an illustration of this. When I was in high school, I was in a men's Bible study. And uh, like many men's Bible studies, one of the primary issues that they were combating was their, uh, their sexual thoughts, trying to keep particularly their struggle with pornography at bay. And uh, we would keep each other accountable weekly, um, often in these kind of behavior management ways. I remember we even had a jar where every time that you looked at pornography, you had to pay a dollar into the jar, and uh, as if that would kind of de- disincentivize. Nonetheless, this, I remember one young man came, um, one of my friends came, and, want, and he announced with pride to the group that he had cut the cable on his computer. Um, on the days where you remember that's what you had to like plug it into a modem. I know I just dated myself for some young people, but nonetheless, regardless. This is, so you cut the cable on his computer and we applauded and we're so proud of him that he made this boundary. It was only a matter of time before he was back in the struggle, found new ways of resorting to his temptation. Why is that? Because the boundaries, while well and good, all these tactics to keep him safe don't actually succeed in changing the heart. Our attempts to control our outward behavior and protect ourselves from the wrong influences isn't enough. In fact, they turn out to be playing the game uh, whack-a-mole. Anybody ever played this game? How do you play whack-a-mole? So it pops over here, you hit it on the head, and it pops over there, hope you get this one. Back and forth. It's like whack-a-mole. Have you ever, again, just as you gain control in one area of your life, sin rears its ugly head somewhere else. That desire that you thought you had managed here ends up showing up somewhere else. And sometimes it even shows up in my moral goodness on the things people give a thumbs up to, the things that I say I'm doing right. I don't mean to demand that we don't do many good things. But those good things, according to the Bible, share the same motives as the bad things. 
And so the good things in themselves are actually bad. They, those good things themselves come from the wrong hearts. They come out of this self-salvation project, trying to save myself, to still be my own Lord and Master by merely getting more of my life under control. Both my sins and my moral goodness turn out to be part of this self-salvation project, this same desperate attempt to be Savior and Lord, as Keller puts it. To truly become a Christian, we must repent of the reasons we did anything right. Not just the reasons we did anything wrong, but the reasons we did anything right. Pharisees, he said, which are spoken of in our passage, only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin underneath all our other sins and underneath all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. The claim is intense that sin is less like a virus we can catch than a cancer already growing within us. And if that is true, the question is not how do I stay clean? The question is how do I get clean? Which turns out actually to be central to the Bible's storyline. It is the question. If you read the Bible, from beginning to end, if you read it particularly through quickly, which I would encourage you all, if you're a Christian, to make a regular habit of it. Start in Genesis. Yes, that means Leviticus and Numbers. Tend to be, and they end up being very central to the story, but keep going. And as you get a 30,000 foot look at the story it's telling, the story underneath all of the stories, you're going to find something true, not just about the nature of sin, but of all of our solutions, all of the solutions that just don't work after Adam and Eve sin in the garden. The question immediately is, okay, what can humans do to fix what is wrong? Maybe human beings just need a second chance. You read a little bit further, okay, maybe they need a third chance. Maybe they need a 23rd chance. And eventually you get to the flood and you say, okay, maybe Jesus needs to, I mean, maybe, maybe God needs to wipe the earth clean, just start over. Okay, that didn't work. Maybe they need to be told what is right and wrong and even have it mandated in the law. Okay, wait, that didn't work. Okay, maybe they need a king who can make them obey. Okay, what happens when that king ends up being corrupt? Okay, and then they, they end up, maybe they just need to learn from the consequences of their behavior by going into exile. Well, they return from exile just as corrupt. Somewhere along the way, it becomes immediately, it becomes imminently apparent that humanity is not going to be able to correct what is wrong on their own. Because some, it is something, what is wrong is not something they experience. It's not simply that they're not working hard enough. It has something to do with their nature, their disposition. Their heart is oriented toward unrelenting, though ever created, rejection of God himself. The problem is what Ezekiel 36 calls a heart of stone. This isn't a medical problem so much as it is a spiritual one. An unfeeling heart, an unmoving heart, no more capable of life than trying to pump blood into stone. So what is the hope? Let's read these verses. Again, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So that first verse is what? About what? About cleansing, right? This longing to be clean before God. That's what he's offering as a way to cleanse them finally, concretely, enduringly. How? Verse 26. 
and I will give you a new heart. Who's going to give it? It's not humans, not softening their own heart, not breaking it up with a hammer. God replacing the heart with a new one, with a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the, go back, sorry, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So what actually results in obedience? Not just doing the right things, but doing them for the right reason. Doing them out of obedience and allegiance to God as our Savior and Lord. What is the only thing that produces it? It's by God himself doing what we could not do by giving a new heart in its place. This ends up showing up all over the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Just read the New Testament. You find, you find some of this language, but you find a bunch of new language getting at the same concept. When another Pharisee comes in the dead of night to Jesus and tries with all of his pretensions to show that he understands what Jesus is saying, Jesus pulls the rug out from under him and says, you cannot know God unless you are born again. Unless you're born a second time. Or second, that you have Paul, a former Pharisee, importantly, speaking of human beings as not being, again, those who simply work harder, do better, who have finally figured it out, but of being fundamentally new creations. Those two images of new birth and of new creation. Go back to this new heart and new spirit, which do not come by humans, a human's own performance. They come from God himself through the death of Jesus Christ, who importantly was regarded as one who was unclean, spat upon, hung outside the city where you took your garbage, your waste, and you had it burned. Jesus himself treated as the, though being the only innocent, clean, and spotless one, treated as unclean himself, given the kind of shame that we have borne all of our lives. Not just the shame that comes from that we should not experience, the kind of misplaced shame that all of us need to have healed by the gospel, but the shame that cries out to us that we have deserved, the shame underneath the shame. Jesus bearing it all upon the Christ, on the cross, being crushed, rejected, made an outsider, so that you and I would never finally be treated that way. So more importantly, not, not just that we would avoid that kind of consequence, but do what we could not. Give us cleansing in the place of unrighteousness and uncleanness. To give us a new heart in the place of a stony one. To make, for the very first time, spiritual life beat within our veins so that our loves change. And out from those loves flow our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, and beliefs. To Jesus, Jesus in his death does what we were not able to do to provide more, much more than protection from external corruption. He gives us true, deep, soul-level cleansing, so much so that for those who trust in him by faith, the stain of sin could never cling to them again. Friends, this means that if you are found in Christ through faith, no matter the shame you feel, you are not ugly, you are not embarrassing, you are not irreparably broken. In him, 
not because of how you've performed or how safe you have kept yourself. You are truly, completely, and enduringly pure. In fact, that internal purity is going to begin to work itself outward. It is the guaranteed assurance that you can and will change. That God is not only not, is not just saved you and keeping you as you are, but making you into something beautiful and spotless. That he's making your outward appearance, your behavior, okay, maybe not outward appearance, I'm, I'm not becoming more beautiful by the day, okay, nonetheless, this, that he is making you, your character, your nature, conform to what he has declared to be true, because his new spirit has lived within you. And this also means we are free from the need to isolate ourselves from others. I have to say this very strongly. We don't need to live in fear any longer, if this is true, of being corrupted by family, by our city, by our culture, by the media. Rather, through the gospel, we can be made into a different kind of community that is holy, but is also patient, a community of grace, where mercy and time abound, a community which approaches those who Jesus approached, a community that refuses to tolerate the silly divisions that we experience in the rest of our culture, but welcomes anyone who will follow King Jesus beside us. And last, we are free from the need to put ultimate importance in our mandates and our social reform. We recognize that any society apart from the one Jesus rules over will always need reforming. Not in a way, though, that makes us passive or removed from our culture, but in a way that makes us more active without giving our actions, our votes, our candidates, ultimate importance, but acting in a way that seeks the good of our neighbor, knowing that heart change is what we all need and only something the gospel can bring. Friends, regardless of where you're coming from today, if you are a, not a Christian, I want to appeal to you today. It might be different than how you've ever seen Christianity, but Christianity is not just a finger in your face, an exclamation point on the sentence, do better, try harder. You could not. Rather, Christians identify around the fact that they need a new nature. They need a new heart that only comes through Jesus alone, and it is because of that heart that they can ever find the power or the, the desire to obey in the first place. If that's something you want, you've reached the end of yourself. You realize you cannot change on your own, you cannot possibly keep yourself safe enough. Rest in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive a new heart from him. And if you are a believer, again, rest in the reassurance that you, because you are safe in Christ, you don't need to sit in misplaced shame. You can run to the throne of grace with all the ugliness you feel. You don't have to isolate yourself from others to keep yourself. In fact, you can approach the ones that seem to be unlovable and unclean. And finally, you can wait for King Jesus who will finally bring the enduring cleanness all of us deserve. I mean, all of us not deserve, but long for. Only he deserves. But let's pray. Lord, you're good to us. Um, you've been good to us in your cross. And uh, we, today, we want to understand a little bit more of what you have accomplished on our behalf that we would not sit in ungodly, misplaced shame, but the shame we do experience would point us to the condemnation that is answered in the cross of Christ. We thank you that so long as he is pure and spotless, so long as he is deserving, we will be treated with affection, with love, treated as the spotless, 
servant that he is. And we long to see him face to face while navigating a world that is very broken, but with, not without hope. We pray all these things for the sake of the matchless name of Christ. Amen.